Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence with me, Helen McDonald, Content Integrity Editor at BMJ and Juan Franco, Editor-in-Chief of BMJ EBM and a Primary Care Clinician. Hi Juan. Hi Helen. Each episode we take a dive into an issue or paper that's caught our eye with a little help with some knowledgeable guests to help us understand what it all means for clinical care, policy or research going forward. This episode I take a deeper dive into cancer screening tests after the publication of a paper that calls into question whether they're really worth it and an announcement from NHS England that they're buying a million new tests. Juan's been looking into diet and obesity, contrasting a research paper in the BMJ with a systematic review on a similar topic, which has been published by Cochrane. Let's start with cancer screening. Many countries have screening programs for cancer, including breast, bowel, cervical and or prostate cancer. And these programs are designed to take people who don't have signs or symptoms of cancer to test them and see if they have it. And the screening programs have become part of cancer control and accepted as a form of health promotion by the public healthcare professionals and policy makers. And the aim, obviously, is to save lives. And so two pieces of info recently caught my eye. The first was a piece in JAMA Internal Medicine. It's a research paper published in summer 2023 by Michael Brethauer and colleagues, looking at whether these common screening tests really do save lives overall. There are already some modeling studies and other observational data out there, but Brethauer and colleagues wanted to answer the question using higher quality evidence from randomized controlled trials. So they did a systematic search for trials and meta-analyses of trials, which have cause cancer-specific mortality and all-cause mortality as endpoints. And around the time that I spotted that paper, I also saw a second interesting bit of information by news reporter Elizabeth Mahays in the BMJ. She was writing about a new pilot of a multi-cancer early detection test called Galeri in the NHS, a blood test that detects abnormal DNA that has come from cancer cells. And NHS England had announced that they were going to buy a million of these tests. There's also a clinical trial going on to evaluate whether the test works. And you can see details of this on the clinical trial registry. And all in all, these two pieces of information made me decide to call Dr. Barry Kramer, one of my go-to people to talk to about cancer. And if I briefly tell you about his career, you will see why he's a very good person to call. Barry was a medical oncologist and public health physician. He's the former director of the Division of Cancer Prevention, which is part of the US National Cancer Institute. He's a member of the scientific committee for uh, the conference Preventing Overdiagnosis, which is how I got to know him. And he's now affiliated to the Lisa Schwartz Foundation for Truth in Medicine. And we're going to start with Barry explaining what matters when we think about cancer screening tests. <laughs> Some of the language that is frequently used in connection with cancer screening tests is that they save lives. And to many, if not all patients, that means that if they take the test, they're likely to live longer. That is, they have a longer life expectancy. And this particular paper calls into question whether we have that evidence in hand and if we should let participants or volunteers uh, continue under the impression that they will live longer as a result of the test. Hmm. And for most screening tests, we don't have that evidence in hand. 
all we really have is evidence that a screening test reduces the risk of dying of a specific cancer or not. And so we yeah. have to be very careful with the precision of our language. And to what extent do you think it's useful to pull this evidence together in this way, where you're obviously aggregating screening tests for a multitude of different types of cancers there? Yes, and that's relevant to the multi, the cell-free DNA-based multi-cancer detection test as well. Because mm. it's certainly possible that even if you don't have sufficient power in a clinical trial to confirm an extension of life expectancy, when you look at 50-plus cancers, you might have sufficient power to look at a reduction in all-cause mortality and therefore life extension. What are we talking about there? What, what sort of plausible range of time? Well, you can look at the relative risks there expressed in the paper, and you see ranges of no life extension to uh, relative risks or hazard ratios of 0.99 or 0.98 in the paper. And so mm -hmm. what they could detect if it exists, were reductions, uh, relative reductions of 1% or 2%. In absolute terms, which is a more informative way of looking at it, they were looking at uh, days of life extension. And there it extended from zero to the best test, which was sigmoidoscopy, of about three months or 127 days. And that was statistically significant. None of the others, even when expressed in days, showed a statistically significant and one might say medically important extension in lifespan. There are other explanations. One is beyond just the statistical power is that there really is no true extension of life expectancy and that's because of competing causes of death. Cancer is for the most part a disease of aging and it's in the elderly population that we tend to focus these screening tests because there are that is something called the aging soma hypothesis. Cancer, we tend to think erroneously of cancer as a disease of cells, but it's actually a disease of tissue and disease of people. And actually it's a societal disease as well. If we focus on tests that only look at what's going on in the DNA, of individual cells, we may miss what's going on in the, in the soma. And if, if you have a so-called aged soma, you may have the inability to combat a variety of diseases, including cancer. And therefore, the same weakening repair mechanisms in your, the DNA of your potential cancer cells may be the very same mechanisms that are putting you at risk of a variety, variety of other diseases. And then finally, treatment for cancer, as you know, can be toxic. And so if you have the occasional perforation here and there from the screening test itself, or the occasional death from surgery, or the occasional death from heart disease because you've given a hormone, or radiation, or chemotherapy that can give you a few extra deaths here and there of heart disease or lung disease or a second cancer, you may lose ground and be unable to detect an increase in life expectancy because there is none. I always find it so interesting to talk to Barry and 
to reflect on how complicated it is to evaluate screening tests. There's such, in my view, an absence of public discussion about some of the benefits of testing or the limitations. Were you surprised by the overall findings, Juan? Well, in this in this case, I, I don't think I would be surprised because there were already systematic reviews on each of the screenings that indicated that there was little to no difference in overall mortality for each of the cancer screenings. So what this review did, and did very nicely, was trying to um, illustrate that in absolute terms and 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 all of the screenings together. So in one way, it depends on how much you've read the previous bibliography. It does not come as a surprise. But to inform policy, the way they, they gather the data and they display the absolute risk differences, I thought that that was very smart. Well, Juan, having totally failed to surprise you with the summary of what we know about current screening tests, let's see if you learn something more as we turn our attention to the multiple cancer detection tests, including the one that I mentioned, Galeri. We're going to begin with Barry telling us uh, what he knows about how they work. An important discovery over the last decade or so is that at least some tumors will shed fragments of DNA. Hmm. And since cancer is associated with mutations in the DNA and methylated mutations of DNA, the hope has been that you could do an assay that could pick up a whole variety of cancers that are shedding fragments. That's the theory, that's the hope, and the intuition is that it will be a simple way of testing for and identifying not only the presence of cancer, but the pattern that's associated with specific organ cancers. Now, a screening test is the next level of difficulty, which should not be underestimated mm. because smaller tumors presumably shed fewer fragments that are harder to detect. And that's what early evidence from this very test is starting to suggest. That is the sensitivity of the test, its ability to pick up cancers tracks pretty well with the stage of cancer. So it's far better at picking up the stage three and four cancers, the ones that are less curable or incurable, than it is at picking up the very ones we want to pick up most in screening. That is stages one and two that are still curable surgically. And so far, it's looking like that is the case in early evidence from the trial. Mm -hmm. The trial, the trialists who are obviously experienced trialists are well aware of these issues. They have chosen not as their primary endpoint life expectancy or life extension, although maybe over time that will happen. And the United Kingdom clearly has a very good uh, tumor registry, but their primary endpoint is not that. Their primary endpoint is reduction in late stage disease, that is stage three and four. So what presumably that would be detected sooner than actual overall mortality, where you might have to wait for many years or even decades to 
to detect such a thing? Yes, probably not decades because most of our cancer trials did not need decades to detect a meaningful reduction in cause-specific mortality if it was there. I don't know how much longer it would have to be, but um, I'm just speculating it would be three, five, six more years. So it's something that is, I would say, feasible to do with a high-quality tumor registry as is available in the United Kingdom. However, the investigators, even that is a double-edged sword. First of all, there's a difference between simple stage shift, that is moving stage of disease from late stage to early stage disease at diagnosis. There's a clear difference between that and proof of reduction in all-cause mortality. And that's because you may simply be able to pick up a tumor that is already metastatic at an earlier stage, and therefore you won't extend life expectancy. And that would go under the rubric of ineffective screening, screening that appears to pick up earlier stage disease, but it doesn't really change the outcome. The other problem with that is overdiagnosis. Was there something more new and surprising for you there, Juan? Well, yes, I think that this was something completely new. I feel completely ignorant about this uh, new tech test and uh, and the description of what it may or may not do was very surprising, especially the part where the the ability to de- detect um, early stage cancers um, that this this ability might be limited. I think that that's what struck struck me the most because it sort of violates the the principles of screening that aims at detecting cancer at the early stages. Of course, we need more information, and perhaps this research will 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 provide some more data. Uh, but perhaps the other thing that also got me thinking is um, presumably testing more cancer simultaneously will uh, give us more power to detect changes in overall mortality. But having all these tests done simultaneously, we wouldn't know exactly what's the relative contribution necessarily of, or, or the added effects of each of the, this, right? Or it, they, we might, because otherwise in the future we might say instead of 50, we might need to t- test 100 cancers. So I think this, or perhaps less, 20 or 15, why 50? And perhaps it's ignorance about the test, but it, uh, basically all this trial, I think, would be bring a lot of information about wh- where the true effect of this screening program would do. I think those bigger picture considerations are all really interesting. I guess I was also curious to know what NHS England's position and plan was with respect to this pilot that they were going to conduct and the potential purchase of the million tests that Elizabeth's news story had laid out. And BMJ contacted NHS England to understand more about about that situation. And they said that the trial is now entering its final year. And they said, next spring, we'll get some early results from the first year of the trial. If those results are promising, we will run a larger scale pilot of the Galeri test as a screening tool using up to 1 million tests from 2024 until 2026. 
This would be an interim implementation pilot, not a rollout. Any future decision on population screening with Galeri as a national screening programme would be for the UK National Screening Committee to make. I think knowing that's quite reassuring because talking to Barry, it's very evident that evaluating screening is, is no easy job. And we're very lucky in the UK to have a screening committee to look at those data uh, when, when they're ready. Juan, you've been looking into another rather meaty topic this week, the complex world of carbohydrates and nutritional epidemiology and advice about diet is clearly a massive public health issue and the cornerstone of many clinical consultations. Tell us what you've been looking into. So one of this uh, research paper was published uh, at the BMJ recently, uh, the association between changes in carbohydrate intake and long-term weight changes, a prospective cohort study by Yiwan and colleagues. I, I thought that this paper was very interesting uh, because it was based on these uh, large cohorts of uh, f over 46,000 women uh, in the nurses' health study, 67,000 women in the, the second nurses' health study, and 22,000 people in the healthcare professionals' follow-up study over for over 20 years. And ba they basically looked at the diet composition and this concept of low glycemic index and the st and the the food that had um um greater contents of starch or or for example vegetables that had fewer starch content high high levels of starches for example potatoes and so on and how that affected weight in in, in overall population how it was associated and, with uh, weight Yes, how it was associated with weight. And apparently eating uh, less starchy vegetable, basically eating less fries, um, <laughs> was associated with uh, less uh, weight gain um, throughout the years. Um, a, a, a negative change of three kilograms in, in, uh, in a four-year um, uh, period, which um, it doesn't uh, sound like a lot, basically, but it, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting from the perspective of how diet composition can affect weight. And this was connected to some other a Cochrane review that I we recently edited because I work in one of the Cochrane Endocrine Metabolic Disorders group, and uh, and and this review was focusing on people with obesity, and they were looking at several similar question, but the difference is that they were looking at people with obesity, uh, the 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 diet low glycemic diet, and randomized control trials, so experimental studies, and they found that that the difference in weight was uh, was was negligible basically and the quality of the evidence was very low so i was trying to wrap my around about these two id two studies uh, signaling the effect on diet and i thought that it would be interesting to interview the, the lead author of the cochrane review as she does research in this film i got her uh, to explain to us a little bit about what glycemic index and what glycemic load is A brief intro about myself. My name is Khadija Chekima. I'm from Taylor's University in Malaysia. I am a nutritionist and my recent research interests have been on diet for overweight individuals with a focus on glycemic index and glycemic load. 
My recent publication on this topic is a systematic review in Cochrane regarding low glycemic index and glycemic loads for overweight individuals. Probably I should start off with the definition before we dwell into the uh, details. So for glycemic index, it's basically a relative ranking of how carbohydrates in foods affects the postprandial blood glucose levels. And as for the glycemic load, uh, with the word, as we can see, it's load. So it's basically derived from the glycemic index, but also taking into account the quantity of the carbohydrate intake. So to ensure that there is lower calories intake, you need to have a sense of uh, satiety and satiation, which, was, which is um, been shown to be contributed by a lower GI foods. So when we're talking about um, low GI, basically the way that it gives uh, a better uh, satiety and satiation is because usually low GI food have higher fiber content. So due to the higher fiber content, the soluble and insoluble fiber, that actually helps to um, slow down the digestion process and also allows you to feel fuller in a longer period of time because of the slow digestion that's uh, happening in the guts. Okay, could you provide an example of which foods would provide theoretically this level higher level of society? So basically, uh, society, for, example, for example, whole grains, legumes, this kind of whole uh, food which is less processed are the ones that are contributing to this uh, lower glycemic index. But when we're talking about this ultra-processed foods, there is a lot of additives and also additional ingredients in a sense, for example, high fructose syrup. This, the high fructose uh, syrup, contains a lot of energy in it. Helen, was that new info for you? There was some familiar information in there. But what I really enjoyed was listening to an expert in nutritional epidemiology really succinctly and clearly explain the different types of carbohydrate. And I really like the words that she chose to do that. I think they, they're very easy to understand and you could really imagine using them with a patient. Yeah, that was uh, super helpful. Perhaps now we will hear Kadija's thoughts about uh, the BMJ paper I told you about. Okay, uh, I came across this paper. I've uh, gone through it as well. So it's, it's a well-written paper. And we have to also consider the fact that when it comes to prospective cohort studies, they are actually a limitation which we should actually take into consideration, which is the self-reporting issue. And also mm -hmm. the use of food frequency questionnaires. So this is the uh, method that is being employed in this um, journal article, right? Mm -hmm. So yes. considering yes, yes, yes. the fact that self-reporting, when we are actually uh, considering of doing a systematic review, it will definitely <laughs> reduce the level of evidence, correct? When it comes to self-reporting. Mm -hmm. And also when we're talking about the food frequency questionnaire, the food frequency questionnaire, the reliability towards this type of questionnaire is a little bit questionable in a sense that it depends on the memory of the individual. So, you know, a person might, might 
you know, misinterpret the number of times they consumed a specific type of food. When, for example, they might be thinking they've been consuming that like three to four times a week, when in the actual reality, they might have been consuming it seven to eight or vice versa. So there is, that's one of the limitation that has been uh, reported when it comes to uh, food frequency questionnaire. And also, we should also consider another thing, which is the social desirability bias. So this mm -hmm. sense, the social desirability bias, where you know, the participants will tend to answer the questions in a sense that it presents themselves in a socially acceptable term, or in the sense probably to gain the approval of the researchers. So these are the things that might mm. happen when it comes to uh, this type of studies. Yeah, and, and, and that's, uh, that's really interesting because this study, for example, control for many behavioral variables, for example, uh, smoking, uh, sedentary behavior, and multiple other variables. Uh, but this bias is very difficult to to con control for, right? So from because it might be related to other types of behaviors that lead to, for example, weight loss. And as so, and and one of the things that struck me from this paper and also from your review is um, the the effect size, right? So it's three kilograms in four uh, change in three kilograms in four years. And I think in your reviews, also less than five kilograms long-term follow-up. Basically, if we were to see it in such way, it is actually based on uh, Mayo Clinic. It is advisable to reduce about 3,500 calories per week, and you'll be able to lose about 0 0.45 kilograms, right? So in a sense that mm -hmm. within, within a month, it should be roughly at about two kilos, so, but here in this study, within the four years duration, the number of kilos lost is, I would say, it's a small number compared to what can be lost within a month based on the, you know, reference of Mayo Clinic. So, yet again, like I mentioned, the self-reporting would be an issue because we do not know exactly whether these figures are the actual figures or not and also whether they're really following this diet or not. And, and again, multifactorial reasons that could happen within, because they're living in like in a free living environment. For example, given a, in a, within a family, all right, within a family, nowadays we need to have like both parents to be working. So there's less meal prep at home. The eventually they will, you know, go back to this ultra processed food just to get whatever uh, nutrients that they need. And also, we should also consider the fact that um, the cost of the uh, food, when we're trying to get higher quality food, for example, less processed food, they tend to be more on a more expensive spectrum. Uh, so, Khadija, um, where does that leave clinicians who are trying to give people advice about nutrition and weight? So, when, we're t when we are advising our patients... Consuming low GI and GL is definitely something good because of the fact that they're high in fiber and nutrient content. They're very dense in nutrient content. But we also should be considering the fact that any diet, it should be a balanced diet. So we should not be solely focusing on a single you know, macronutrient in a sense here, which is a carbohydrate. We definitely should be consuming 
the good quality type of carbohydrate, but we should also balance it off with uh, the fat content and also the protein content of our diet. So getting the balance all together. So to me, when we're talking about nutrition, it has to be from a holistic point of view, holistic approach to be able to achieve this weight loss that we're um, trying to aim for. And that's quite general advice, but uh, do you think we'll ever go to the point in research in the real world where we'll be able to address some of these problems with the data? So I was actually working on uh, low glycemic index and glycemic load diets. And also I found that there is one thing that was helpful, which was a technology-based thing, which we call continuous glucose monitoring. Have you heard of that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mostly for diabetes, but I'm not sure, but uh, if you can clarify it a little bit. Yeah, so basically uh, this has been mm -hmm. invented to um, help those diabetic individuals to monitor their glucose level 24 hours a day. Okay, so mm -hmm. I actually have used this device on my overweight uh, participants. What we have observed from our results is that the underreporting was way lower in the intervention group compared to the control group. Meaning to say, mm. the fact that we are able to observe them, I mean, not physically observe, but the CGM data. So, for example, if you consume something, it's going to record it. Your postprandial glucose is going to shoot up. Mm -hmm. So, when you're reporting mm -hmm. your dietary intake, you're not going to run away and you're going to know, like, Oh, somebody's observing mm -hmm. me. I'm going to have to write the correct food here. So uh, we saw that after uh, analyzing the data, the underreporting from the beginning of the day, from the beginning of the study within the intervention group themselves, okay, within the intervention group themselves, before and after, it definitely reduced. And comparing to the control group, it was way lower. So one way what we can probably do when it comes to intervention Uh, related to nutrition, probably we can actually mm -hmm. consider using this device to give a sense of observation towards these participants to ensure that they are reporting more accurate information. It will never be 100% correct, but you know, it will improve the uh, position of the uh, data that they're reporting. So, yeah, I was really struck in that last, last bit about the, the implications in the family and, and considering you, Helen, you have a big family. What are your thoughts on this? I see where you're going now, Juan. <laughs> I see the bit you're referring to. And yes, uh, we are a two working parent family trying to feed three hungry uh, children most evenings. And I suspect that the quality of my carbohydrates often fail to meet the high standards that that might have been described in the BMJ paper. I tell you the other thing which which I thought was uh, interesting, which also, I guess, gets to the point of stripping things off and revealing things for what they really are, me, a, a, maybe a terrible processed carbohydrate cook, was the, the comments that Khadija made about the continuous glucose monitoring, because that runs a little bit contrary to what you might see in clinical care, where typically people with type 2 diabetes wouldn't be monitoring their glucose but it made me think about how how that monitoring might be linked to more honesty or an ability to reflect on what you've you've eaten more fully perhaps than 
than if you're just relying on recall alone. Because I definitely recall from my clinical days that there, there were patients who found monitoring a useful experience for them. Yeah, yeah. With new technologies, I guess, right uh, now, people taking pictures of the food all the time. Uh, <laughs> there's a little some research of, about those pictures being useful to analyze the content, and uh, but the same thing as as, as as tracing steps, right, with your Fitbit and so on. It don't relate to what people whether it actually improves patient outcomes. Well, I don't know if we've settled much about nutritional epidemiology or indeed cancer screening today, Juan, but I've had I've had fun trying to. <laughs> um, and uh, a huge thank you to our guests, Barry and Khadija, for their contributions to the podcast this episode. You can find links to all of the papers that we've talked about today and to Elizabeth's news story in the episode notes. We'll be back next time with some more guests to discuss interesting facts and occurrences in the world of evidence. For now, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Take care out there.